Welcome to the One Stiletto in the Grave podcast with your hosts, Sonny Ormond and Jane James. We have a jolly good show for you today, darlings. It's jokey in every way. Well, it's good to laugh, whether you're sitting down or standing up. And our glorious guest does stand up quite a lot. <laughs> She's wickedly funny and is actually... <laughs> She's sitting down with us today. It's the fabulous Angela Barnes. Today's podcast is sponsored by MTL Associates. Would you love a website but don't know where to start? MTL Associates create websites for people like you. They'll agree a fixed price for their work from just £380 for five pages. And before you sign up, they'll create a prototype so you can see you're getting great quality. And when they build the real thing, they'll keep changing it until you're 100% happy and you own the website, not them. Go to mtlassociates.co.uk and see what they can do for you. MTL Associates. It's you, but online. Welcome, everyone. Now, today, Jane and I are so thrilled to have as our guest one of the funniest, hardworking, most intelligent and downright nicest comedians you could ever wish to meet. And she's also very patient, but more of that anon. You will have seen her on TV shows like Mock the Week and Live at the Apollo, and you will have heard her on the radio, on the News Quiz, News Jack and her own show, You Can't Take It With You, and on her brilliant podcast, We Are History. Oh, and yes, as she says herself, she is also a lifelong fan of the archers. Yippee! <laughs> she is, of course, the wonderful Angela Barnes. Oh, thank you for having me. What an introduction. I'm pretending I heard it for the first time as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we just had a few little glitches, didn't we, too? Just a couple of gremlins to, to in the works today. Oh, oh, I'm so happy yes. to be here. Thank you. Oh, no, it's really nice of you to be here. And we, I mean, this all came about because you're such a fan of the Archers, which we found out when we heard you on, I think, on Mike Fenton Stevens' um podcast oh well, the time, time capsule, capsule. yeah 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 and you mentioned and you mentioned the archers then so uh, have you really been listening all your life what got you hooked on it i have well i it was always on in the house my mum would listen to it you know when i was little like while cooking the dinner or doing the ironing or whatever she she would have it on and i never really engaged with it because it was just that thing that mum listened to but then when i was a bit older and i went away to university i started listening to it because it it was like a little connection to home but I was a real, like, I was a closet Archers listener because you couldn't, in the in the 90s, you couldn't be 18 and tell people you were sneaking off to your room in the halls of residence to listen to the Archers at seven o'clock every night. <laughs> so for many years, it was my dirty little secret, you know, but now I'm out and proud. Now, I think it's perfectly acceptable now. <laughs> oh, right. oh, of course, in Quite those right. days, you had to listen to it at seven o'clock, I guess, didn't you? Yeah, there was no podcast. Was no... And no, yeah, it was either seven o'clock or the omnibus. And you know, when I was a student, I wasn't up at eleven o'clock on a Sunday morning, so that was the omnibus <laughs> out. So yeah, uh-huh. seven o'clock, I'd sneak off and then go back to my cans of lager and being a student again afterwards, as if nothing had happened. <laughs> <laughs> now, I I was thrilled because it was our seventieth anniversary, the Archers anniversary, um, uh, last year, and I was thrilled because I was listening to Woman's Hour and and you were invited on as a guest, and you said that Lily. Was your favourite character? She is, um, she and, and that's is. how we we started our little Twitter. Uh, and then you followed me on Twitter, and I was just <laughs> my my husband is you know he overhears the archers occasionally, but he's not an archers fan, not a listener. 
And I just kept going, Lillian Bellamy is following me on Twitter. And he just looked at me blankly. Like, you don't understand what a big deal this is. And I'm sure, I'm sure, Sonny, you get this all the time, but it's so nice to hear your voice. But I'm looking at you going, well, it's funny because Lillian's voice is coming out of someone else's face because that's not Lillian's face in my head. I know. I'm, darling, I'm sorry to have disappointed you. Look, I'll, oh, I'll get oh, a plastic bag and I'll stick it over, <laughs> stick it over my head for, for, for the entire podcast recording. But, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that because, um, you know, some people do say, gosh, you're exactly what I thought Lillian would look like. And other people like you say, oh, no, sorry. You don't look anything like her. You know? so, so I'm sorry funny. about that. Close your eyes. <laughs> but it is what's sort of beautiful about the Archers, I think, is because, yeah. you know, particularly with a character like Lillian that I've known for 20 years or whatever, it's such a fixed image in your head mm. that you, you get mm. of what these people look mm. like. And then when you do see, I, I remember I had to, I did a thing once because I've sort of become a professional archers fan in many ways. So I get sort of invited <laughs> to do things that are archers related. And when um, mm. that episode when Rob Titchener finally left the village, mm. I, I did a, oh, yeah. an interview. I interviewed him on, um, it was like a Facebook live thing for Radio 4. And so they, they played the episode and I listened to the episode, sat next to, I can't remember the actor's name, isn't that terrible? But I was sat next to him listening to the episode and then I had to interview him straight afterwards. And I was just like, I'm so angry with you. I know you're the actor, but I can't, I can't believe I've got to be nice to you now. Because <laughs> these people are real in your head, you know. And so, yeah. Yeah, yeah of course they are. And, and, and Tim, I mean, it was a terrific storyline that, wasn't it? And, oh, and um, You know, Tim and Louisa, um, you know, who, who played uh, the parts, they, they were brilliant, actually. And he particularly was terribly good. I mean, I didn't have many scenes um, to do with Rob Titchener, but I remember to have one with him, sort of latterly. And, you know, just when he opened his mouth as that character of Rob, uh, in, in the particular episode I was in, I thought, oh, God, he's quite unnerving. And he is such the nicest person in the world. He is so different from he was Rob, isn't he? He's such a very a clever actor. Man. And, yeah. and it, but he managed to convey that. It's so... I mean, it was a difficult listen in places, that storyline. It was incredible. Mm. And, and I think... Mm. That was a storyline that did so much for so many people that were in that sort of coercive control relationship, you know, to see that represented. Mm. Um, mm. And and he really got across that thing that somebody who's like that is so charming and so, you know, on the surface, such a perfect person. And then, mm. you know, it all comes out behind closed doors, all of that. It's, it was so well yeah. portrayed. Um, and particularly mm. when he's doing that, you know, just with his voice. I'm, I'm in awe mm. of Archer's actors, I really am. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it, it it is interesting because, you know, you, you're trying to create a, a three-dimensional character just just with with your voice, and of course, the the great thing about the archers in that particular storyline as well is that we can take the time. Unlike TV, um, you know, um, soaps where they have to get through stories very very quickly. The great mm. thing about that was we could take the time, which of course is what happens, isn't it, with coercive control? Well, so it worked it's really a slow well for that build story. up, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's all the charm yeah. and the you know they call it love bombing, don't they, at the start of the relationship, mm. all of that and then the slow reveal of who this person is it was incredibly powerful and hard to listen to in places but mm. that again is the great thing about the archers because what you've got a storyline like that that is so dark and difficult but there's so much comic relief in the archers that that you do get let off the hook a bit every now and then you know when something's mm. really tough you'll then get a scene with eddie grundy or you'll then get a mm. scene with you know to to give you a bit of respite i mean my my one of my new favorites is i mean she'll never overtake lillian obviously but, but tracy horobin <laughs> i just think oh we love her oh tracy mm. and chelsea mm. what absolute mm. 
stars. No. Now we, we sort of have the internet and everything. It's funny because I've met Susie Riddell, who's great. And mm. but so Tracy Horobin to me looks like her because I've met her and she's on Twitter mm. or whatever. Right. But all the older mm. characters who are around sort of pre-internet, pre-social media, I have a, they don't look like the actor. It's really interesting that yeah. sort of, yeah, yeah that now yeah. you get to yeah. see the people that play them. Yeah. But the Horobins really have, t- have taken a, a very prominent place and quite rightly mm. too in the Archers. And again, fine actor, Susie's wonderful. And, and as indeed Maddie, who's come in to play Chelsea. Um, and um, what, what do you think of the, of the pairing of, of Tracy uh, and Jazza? I was so, I think I punched the air when that happened. It was such a great, because it had to, yeah. it could only be Tracy because of the way Jazza is. You know, so many relationships just wouldn't have mm. been believable. But those two just are. You could see that that Jazza, Tracy is the person who could tame Jazza, who could stop him, yeah. you know, doing what he does on his milk rounds or whatever. So it was really, really believable and really, and their relationship's so lovely. And what's been really nice recently as well, we're seeing them, that those that were essentially comic characters being really fleshed out and having proper dramatic mm. storylines yeah. and proper, mm. you know, while still being able to, have that little bit of comic relief. I just think they're mm. they're brilliant. The Horribins, mm. mm. yeah, no, that they, they are. are. Mm. I, 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 Tracy and Chelsea just sound so much like mother and daughter, don't they? They really do. They really I do. Think, they really do. And those accents yeah. are great. Like they must have worked so hard to get the accents just right because they're not easy accents mm. to do, are they? Mm. That it's such a specific no. part of the country no. it's from. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's great. I'm, no. I'm so in awe of it. Yeah. Oh, well, that's that, that that's great. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is a, a, a little uh, interesting question for you. If you were able to go to Ambridge, would you stay at Grey Gables or would you stay at Linda's B&B? Oh, my goodness. I'm not sure I'd be welcome at either. <laughs> I think I'd have to, I don't know. I'd probably end up at the Grandies, I think. In the... <laughs> I'll, I'll just keep in the side in the side shed. shed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think, I think... Uh, I, I, I mean, I would love to stay with Linda Snell, but I'm not sure she'd love to have me. Mm. <laughs> oh, and why, why do you think Linda wouldn't like to have you? Oh, maybe, maybe I'm doing her a disservice. Maybe I am. I, I just, I love yeah. Linda and I love their relationship as well, Linda and Robert. Actually, I could yeah. see myself mm. sitting in the evenings chatting to mm. Robert, you know, yeah. well, yeah, I could, maybe, maybe that is where I'd end up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, oh, you could take yes. a room at the Bull. You could take a room at the Bull. Oh, yes, of I course, mean, they've got rooms yeah. at the Bull, haven't they? Oh, yes. Yes, yeah, so they've got the bull, rooms see? at the Bull. Yeah. You could come and stay with Lydia at the Dower House. That'd be all right. Oh, very nice. <laughs> I want to see the new kitchen. Absolutely. Excuse me. You ain't seen nothing yet until you've seen that kitchen. That smart tap. Marvellous. Marvellous. <laughs> and now, the wine it, fridge. And the wine fridge, yeah. Now, is oh, yeah. it once true that you gave CPR to the Archers theme tune. (laughs) I did, it's a true story. So when I was a student nurse, um, many years ago, we were taught when we did CPR to get the rhythm right for it, that you do the Archers theme tune. I mean, now I think they get you to do Staying Alive, which is a bit ironic, but um, yeah, so that's what we were taught. And the only time I've ever had to do CPR sort of in a out of hospital setting, I was in Islington with some friends. We were on our way to a pub quiz of all things. And there was a car accident and the gentleman was quite badly injured and wasn't responsive. So I started doing CPR and then the paramedics came pretty quickly and took over. And when something like that happens, you've just got so much adrenaline sort of coursing through you. And um, the, the police officers at the scene took a statement 
and everything. And then they, they phoned me the next day to say that the guy was all right, you know, and then uh, wow. he, he sort of pulled through. Mm -hmm. And they said, um, they, they said that the paramedics had had quite a laugh because when they turned up, I was doing CPR, but I was doing the Archer's theme tune out loud. <laughs> They said it just looked really bonkers. This girl's doing the right thing. Going, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I had no idea what I was oh, doing. That is such a brilliant story. That is absolutely. Oh, Fantastic. But, but Fantastic. am I right in am I right in thinking that that before lockdown, were you due to to come to Ambridge and say hello? Am I right? I, I'd been invited to come and, and have a little studio tour and say hello, but then unfortunately pandemic happened, so that never that never happened. Mm. But um, hopefully one day I'll get to. I mean, I yeah. uh, lovely Kerry Davies, one of the scriptwriters, mm. follows me on Twitter, and I've met him a couple of times. He came to one of my Edinburgh shows once, and, and I hint so heavily that there's definitely a part for <laughs> a little red-headed comedian in there somewhere. One yeah. day, maybe. Um, yes. But, you know, well, maybe, you know, maybe one day. Leave, leave it with me, Angela. Just leave Thank it with you. me. We'll, well I, we I did an do. event with um, lovely uh, old Jill Archer, Paddy. And um, yes. she said mm. she'd have a word, but, you know, nothing's happened yet. So we'll see. We'll see. Well, these things <laughs> take time, but, you know, they, oh. they often do materialise. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I, you should get on that case, Sonny, very definitely. Just mm. uh, you mentioned the sort of comedy characters in the Archers. What do you, what do you make of the comedy elements in the Archers? Do you, does well, it hit the spot for you? It does. I mean, because of that, you know, I don't watch other soaps, really. I don't watch TV soaps. The nice mm. thing about The Archers as well, particularly now, you get it on a podcast or whatever. However busy yeah. I am, I can fit in 15 minutes on a podcast, you know, in my car or wherever. So I find it a lot easier to keep up with. But also, it's not that, you know, a lot of soaps on telly, it's just relentless drama. And as Sunny mm. said before, they unfold so quickly that it's not believable. It's not, you know, you're like, oh God, they've mm. just, you know, their mother's just died and now this has happened to them. And then that's like anyone else would, you know, have ended it all by now. So with the arches, that slow burn means that the drama has proper tension. It's not just all thrown mm. in your face. You properly watch it unfold. So the comedy's really important. So it's not all just bleak otherwise. Um, yeah, so yeah those comic characters and those and of course it's ridiculous some of it of course it's you know you've had the whole thing recently with the uh, Kenton's diary and all of that business yes. and yes. I just think it's been great and the winding up you know Eddie Grundy winding him up and then him getting his own back and all those things that you mm -hmm. go of course that wouldn't happen of course that mm -hmm. but it doesn't matter because it's it's a comic device in a in a drama yeah. to, to just mm -hmm. release the pressure a bit release the tension mm -hmm. um, and I'm all there for it yeah I think it's great Mm. Yeah. Would you stuff. would you like to write for the Archers, Angela? Would that be fun? You know, I would love to, but I imagine it's a um, it's such a tricky job, isn't it? Because you've got to plant those seeds so early on. Mm. I'm used to mm. in in stand up comedy or writing any sort of comedy. Really, you've got one thing you're looking for, and that's a laugh. And it's so immediate mm. and in the moment, and you know in that moment whether you've succeeded or failed because they're either laughing mm. or they're not. Mm you know mm. whereas I think if you're writing drama you don't know till further down the line whether what you've written has been a success or not Do you know what I mean? you don't you mm. have to wait mm. to see what the feedback then is later on and that I'm, I'm somebody who likes instant gratification so I like to think <laughs> I, I would want, be wanting to resolve things immediately you know I'd be wanting mm. to rather right. than that I think I'd find it really hard to eke things out or to sort of you know let things unfold slowly I, I'm I'm all about getting that hit, <laughs> gratification yes. immediately. 
um, which is why yeah. I think comedy writing it, seems it, to be it's better. It's very different, isn't it? I, I, writing, obviously, uh, for yourself, for, for, for stand-up. I mean, and you've recently come back from Edinburgh. Um, mm. ha, I mean, how was that? Because actually, you know, we, we're getting through the whole COVID thing now. Was it very much like it was pre-COVID this year? It was. And it was so nice to get back and, and do a proper Edinburgh. So I hadn't done The Fringe since 2018 because um, mm. I was due to do it in 2020. I had 2019 away. And then I was going to do it in 2020, and obviously that didn't happen, and 2021 didn't happen. Mm. So it was I was itching to get back and do the fringe, and and it did feel like old times. You know, the rooms there were no COVID restrictions in the rooms. Some people wore masks if they wanted to, but most people didn't. And I mean, I did get COVID the week I got back, so you know. Oh, <laughs> did that you? I did, yeah. But um, but do, do you know what? It wasn't because I thought oh, this is going to be carnage. Like, everyone's going to... Everyone in these packs... Mm. You know what Edinburgh Fringe rooms are like? Yeah. Packed, mm. sweaty boxes. Mm. So I think it's uh, incredible that more people didn't. Um, but it was it was so nice to be back and doing it. And the Fringe is... I mean, it's exhausting and relentless, mm. but it's mm. so m much part of being a stand-up comic in this country that it's just... Yeah, it was good to be back and doing it. And, and mm. how I'm interested in, because when you're doing something as intensive as, as Edinburgh Festival, um, what, what is a sort of day like for Angela Barnes when you're doing <laughs> a show like that? I mean, do you kind of just, can you go out and see other shows or is it that you just think I've got to, you know, focus on the show today? Mm. Well, it's, it's sort of changed as I've got older, I think, because I haven't got the yeah. energy I had even 10 years ago, you know. Mm. Um, so it used to be, well, Edinburgh 10 years ago, I would do my show and then I'd do lots of compilation shows and go and do little spots on other shows. You do radio gigs or whatever and just have a full day of it. Well, I just can't do that now. It's um, and, and if I do do that, then my show's going to suffer. And I think yeah. the way I look at it is I my show is at seven o'clock in the evening and um, you know, I'm charging people to come to my show. I need to give them the best show I can give them. It's no, you know, if they've paid mm. for a ticket for the show, if I'm hungover or tired, that's not fair. <laughs> so I sort of try mm. and look after myself mm. a bit more now in Edinburgh. So I don't do as many other gigs as I used to do. I'll do a few. Um, I'll do the odd radio thing or whatever. It's useful to promote the show, obviously, to go and, mm. and do things yeah. like that. Um, because the bottom line is you're doing the show every night for a month and that's quite a lot of tickets to sell. <laughs> so, you know, you have to do little bits to remind people that you're there and you're doing it. But um, mm. I don't do the sort of four or five gigs a day that I used to do in Edinburgh. And I try and look after, I don't drink when I'm in Edinburgh. I don't, I try and swim most days. Um, swimming is the only exercise I actually like. And so I try and do that and it's mm. a good sort of head clearer and, um, you know, and I sort yeah. of meet up. The nice thing about Edinburgh is, you know, as a comedian, people think that we all know each other and hang out together, but obviously we all live in different places and we all travel in different places. You're gigging all over the country, all over the world. In Edinburgh is that one month where there's a lot of your friends in the same city for a whole month. Mm, right. and, mm. and where I don't have to drive anywhere or get a train anywhere. You know, that's the only month of my year where I'm not driving every day. So that's really nice to be able to just meet people for lunch and go and have a coffee and a bit of cake or... Um, so I try to just have a nice calm day, do my show, and then maybe go and see other shows in the evenings. Particularly once my show's bedded in, the first week I tend not to go and see other shows till I'm happy that my show's bedded in and I'm happy with it. And then after that, I'll go and, and go and watch other shows. And, and and I guess the show is the show very different from the start of it to the end of it. I mean, in terms of when you say bedding in, I mean, how honed is it before you actually even open at Edinburgh? Well, it's funny because you 
so I you do a lot of previews with a stand-up show before you take it to Edinburgh um, and for me people have different goals in Edinburgh so when you're starting out as a comic and you're taking your first solo show or your second solo show to Edinburgh you want to have it as polished as possible because you're it's a trade fair really you're saying to TV yeah. producers mm -hmm. or bookers or whatever look this is what I can do so you want it to be the best it can be before you get there then a bit further on the sort of stage I'm at now is my purpose really for doing Edinburgh TV producers aren't coming to see my show they're going to see the new people they haven't seen before mm -hmm. so my my goal in Edinburgh is to get the show ready to take it on the road so Edinburgh for me is a sort of hot housing of the show but having said that mm -hmm. people are still buying tickets so I don't want to take it there and it be rubbish you know I still want it to be a good show mm -hmm. when I get to Edinburgh but then just get it really fit and ready to take on the road so I was previewing it a lot beforehand all over the place in sort of small venues and then got to Edinburgh and it happens every single time and every time I'm surprised by it you think right that's the show that's the show I'm going to do and then you go to Edinburgh and you do it and jokes that have worked everywhere else in the country don't work in Edinburgh so <laughs> oh, there's no rhyme or reason to it I can't. so you're like oh okay well that that joke I really liked has got to go and so the first week is sort of working out okay well what do these audiences want if they don't want that you know and sort of mm. tweaking bits um, but usually it just takes a couple of days and then you're okay this is the show now and then it's just a case of getting it really tight and really um, just sharp so that when you take it out on tour it's as tight and as sharp as it can be so so really it's it's thinking as a, from an actor's point of view well mm. you, you it's a script isn't it by the end of it mm. presumably your show is, is a real script is a tight script is that right Fairly, yeah. I mean, the, the difference, I guess, is that in a stand-up show, if things happen in the room that you can respond to, that you can't if you're acting in a play, mm. you sure. know, so mm. if somebody coughs or sneezes or drops something or, you know, a mobile phone goes off or whatever, I can react. To, so I can come off my script very easily, and to, but it's being able to get back on it is the <laughs> tricky mm. thing. Because also in Edinburgh, mm. you've got your hour slot and somebody else is coming in yeah. after you. So, you know, you can't go wandering off what you need to get said too much because you don't have time then to finish your show. Mm. So it, you have to be a bit more right. disciplined in Edinburgh than you do anywhere else just because you've got that hour and that's it. And you can't, you know, you need you haven't got much room to play with. Mm. Um, whereas on tour, you can have a bit more, it's a bit more relaxed. Mm. Uh, do you have to, because in Edinburgh, it's small, it's smallish venues, isn't mm. it? But then when you're out on tour, you're in much bigger venues. Do you have to make any kind of adjustments to either the way you put the material across or the material itself because of the size of the room? Generally, not not too much. It's um, I mean, the rooms I'm playing in Edinburgh now are a bit bigger than they were. So I might mm -hmm. I think the room I had this year was 170 seater, uh, which isn't massive, but it's right. not you know you start no. off you're playing sort of 30 yeah. seaters or 40 seaters. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I would say that obviously the bigger the room, the less personal it can feel. So if you're on stage at the Hammersmith Apollo, for example, you've got three and a half thousand people. Yeah. You haven't got that connection to everyone in the room that you have in a room of 100 people. You know, you can't see everybody. You can't tell exactly what's going on in the room. And, you know, if somebody drops a mug at the back of Hammersmith Apollo, you're not going to know about it from the stage. So it's a slightly right. less personal sort of thing. So you react less to things that are happening in the room, the bigger the room is. But having mm. said that, in many ways, the, the bigger the room is, the, the easier it is. You know, if you can play a room with 20, 30 people in it, then you can play a room with 10,000 people in it because 
you know, 50% of 20 people laughing is only 10 people. 50% of 3,000 people laughing Mm. is still a lot of laughs, you know. So it's that if you can make a small amount of people laugh, then the bigger rooms are easy. And also, like, laughing's a really... There's so many theses to be written about sort of audience behaviours, I think, in comedy or in any sort of performance. But an audience doesn't necessarily know what is affecting them and what is making them behave in the way they do. You're very unaware of it when you're just watching something. You think, well, I'm either finding it funny or I'm not. But if you're in a room where the audience is is too lit, they're very aware that they can be seen from the stage, that makes them very tense because they know that you can see them. And so tense people don't laugh or it takes more to make tense people laugh. Whereas if they're in a big group of people in the dark and they're anonymous, then they behave as a big mass and they can let themselves go. They can be disinhibited They can, because they know you can't see them. And so that's much easier right. to make people... So there's all these little things that people in an audience might go, oh, that was a bit awkward, that show. They didn't laugh at anything. Whereas as a performer, you're going, that's because you all had lights on you and you could see, I could yeah. see you and you were all tense and nervous and weren't yeah. relaxed. You know, so there's all these sort of little things that make it a different energy in a room or a different sort of way an audience behaves. It's quite interesting. And how does that work for you, the sort of converse of that? I mean, do you like to be able to see your audience or are you happy if, if you know, you look out there and it's dark? What, 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 what do you prefer? I, I, I prefer if they're in the dark, to be honest. Um, because, not because I don't want to see them particularly, but mainly because of what I've just said. I know that if they're in the dark, they're going to be more relaxed and happy. And so I'm more relaxed and yeah. happy. Yeah. Um, if yeah. I, you know, if they're very well lit, very often that means I, I know that they know I can see them and then it's all tense mm. and then you have to work harder to break that tension because that's what a, a laugh is a break of tension you build up the tension mm. and then you break it and they laugh and it's a relief mm. thing but if they're aware that you can see them because laughing is something that we do that you know is quite disinhibited it's quite a you know we make a noise we pull a funny face so if you're aware that people are looking at you laughing it's very hard to laugh you mm. want to be doing it in a way that no one can see you so you can really let yourself go so um, I prefer, sometimes if I'm emceeing a gig, if I'm hosting a gig um, and bringing on other acts, sometimes then I might ask for the lights to go up a little bit because then I'll talk to the audience. If I'm not doing a set right. or a show and I might talk to them a bit more, then I want to see them. Sure. Um, but generally, I think everyone's happier if the audience is in the dark and, and we're lit. Well, it makes sense. Sorry, Jane, you're going to say something. Yeah, I was just going to ask if heckling still happens because it used to be a big thing, didn't it? Mm. Does that still happen? And is it ever funny it, when it does? It's rarely funny when it does. It, it, yeah. it does happen not as often as it used to. I think there was a period of time, I think, in that sort of early part of the alternative comedy scene where it was seen like it was a combative sport, <laughs> mm. <laughs> that it was audience versus uh, comedian, and yeah. that was the thing. And that's not what it is now, really. And I think some people, if they don't go to comedy very often or they don't they, they don't realise that that's not what it is. And so what often happens now is, because if people have bought a ticket to see you as a comedian... They haven't bought a ticket to hear Dave down the pub who thinks he's funny shout out stupid things, you know? Yeah. So what tends to happen now is when that does happen, the audience quite often polices it themselves. They'll tell right. them to shut up because they are trying to watch a show, you know? Um, it happens more in comedy clubs, I would say, because, mm. people, you know, lots of drink. And also what happens in a comedy club is you, the audience haven't booked to see you specifically. So if I'm doing a tour show, right. they've booked to see me, 
so they know what they're getting they know what they're expecting and you know and generally speaking they're already going to be a want of a better word fan or someone who likes what you do whereas in a comedy club they're just given what they're served up and you're not everyone's cup of tea you know but comedy's subjective we all agree comedy's subjective so there's no way you can please everyone as a comedian so if you've got someone in and despite the fact we all know that and you ask anyone they'll say yeah comedy's subjective different things make people laugh in a different way people get really angry when you're not their taste mm. and it's a and, you know it, it, be that on twitter be that in a comedy club whatever they're like, i don't think this is funny and it gets makes them angry that other people are finding it funny and they're not rather than just going oh yeah comedy is subjective this isn't my cup of tea i'll wait for the next act or i'll go and do something else until they're finished or whatever they they've got to let you know that you're not their cup of tea because they think all entertainment should be geared to what they're into you know so there's these weird Good dynamics are at play and drink comes in but i find mm. it usually usually two things happen with a heckler one is they'll shout out something really stupid and all you have to do is go sorry what did you say and then the room goes quiet and when they then have to repeat it in a quiet room they'll realize how stupid what they said was and suddenly they look like idiots and you could just go okay can i move on now you've made your point or they will say something that is genuinely funny and in that case if that happens if they say if a heckless heckles something that's genuinely funny and the audience laughs i think sometimes the in a comedian your sort of gut reaction is to try and best them or try and take them mm. down but the mm. audience has the audience has found them funny they're on their side at that point they're laughing so if you then say something nasty the audience is going to be, what are you doing? They were funny. Mm -hmm. You know, you have mm -hmm. to sort of read where the audience is on the heckler. So if mm -hmm. a heckler says something funny and the audience laughs, you have to let them have it. You have to go, mm -hmm. nice one. Yeah, let's move mm -hmm. on. Rather than try and fight it, because then you look a bit desperate and you look a bit like you're going, oh, shut up, I'm the funny one in here. Stop stop mm -hmm. stealing my thunder, you know. And then the audience feels a bit uncomfortable and it's like, well, you, you know. Because what we don't, British audiences don't like arrogance. I think uh, some, you know, if you look at a lot of American comics come on stage and they are very high status, they're very, I'm yeah. better than you, I know better than you. Uh, British audiences won't have that, you know. And the minute you try and say that you're better than them in some way or the minute you try and assert some sort of authority that you don't have, then they won't have that. Um, you know, we're much more low status. So I always say I want my audience to go away from my shows not wishing they were me, being grateful they're not me. That's the, I want them to feel better about their lives, not worse, you know, so I'd rather the audience come away having had a good laugh and go, that was funny, I'm glad I'm not her, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that's, that's, that's interesting, Andrew, because it's just sort of going back to when you very first started um, doing stand-up, can, can, can you remember the very first stand-up gig that you did? I mean, you, you were in your 30s, I think, am I right? I was, yeah, I was 33 when I started, so, no, older than that, I think, 34 maybe. Um, do you, do you remember it? I mean, and what I was going to ask, uh, apart from that was, um, you know, did it feel like suddenly, yeah, I'm home, I've come home, but also the business of finding a persona as a, as, as a stand-up comic as well. I mean, did that take a while? I mean, you know, was it, I don't know, self-deprecating comedy initially? Or, or do you know what I mean? It's, it's finding what your yeah. persona is, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think it's different for different people, but I think for most comics, your persona will find you. And I think okay. if you try and start out and say, right, I am going to be this sort of comedian, what happens is you then paint yourself in that corner. And if it turns mm. out mm. you're not very good at being that sort of comedian, then you're screwed. Whereas um, I think when I started, so I, I started uh, 
quite late. Like, so, so my first gig was, I did a stand-up comedy course um, here in Brighton where I live. The Comedia Comedy Club in Brighton does a brilliant stand-up comedy course and lots of comedians you've seen on telly will have done it. And um, so I did that and they did like a showcase at the end, but you had to audition for it. So I think there was 25 of us on the course and 12 of us got to do the show at the end. So I auditioned and I got onto the show at the end. So that was my first gig, if you like. But that was a really friendly, because you just invite all your friends and family. Everyone's really supportive. <laughs> and so you do your first gig at the Comedia Comedy Club in Brighton. And there's you know, 250 supportive people there. And you do your three minutes of material and come off going, I think I'm a comedy god. Like, I'm obviously a natural <laughs> at this. And then you go and do your first proper open spot in a proper comedy club where it's, you know, 10 men and a dog in a room above a pub. And you're like, oh, no, I'm not a comedy god. I've actually got to learn how to do this. Um but I think with the, the persona thing is really interesting because uh, I think it's Gary Delaney who um, he made a really good point once that you're either a writer who's had to learn to perform or a performer who's had to learn to write if you're a stand up comic. Mm. So I think some people come very much from an acting performing background and mm. so they can really sell a joke, but that'll yeah. only get you so far and you've got to learn how to write material. Or I think I'm more the other camp where I could write jokes but I had to learn how to perform them um or to get comfortable with myself performing them so um and so the persona thing for me was I'm just going to write whatever I can write whatever I find funny and then the persona will find me and and it's weird that moment when you realize what your persona is because I didn't really think I had one until people started writing reviews of my comedy and they would say things like, oh, self-deprecating, world-weary. And you're like, oh, that's what I am, is it? Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> now I know what I am. Um, and, and then you just sort of get more confident in your own persona, what your own voice is. And uh, yeah, but I think if you, there's a danger of, particularly if like me, you're, you're a big comedy fan. Mm. When you start doing stand-up, you want to emulate the people that you like. <laughs> But you might not be able to do that, you know. So mm. quite often the, the comedians that I like watching most are nothing like what I do. You know, they're completely mm. different styles to me um, because I can't do what they do and they can't do what I do. You know, it, it's different people have different voices and different strengths and that's just, yeah. you've just got to see what yours is. Mm. Mm. That's really yes. interesting. Yeah, it is. It's interesting what you say, you know, that that the the style in a way found you because you were good at writing jokes and uh, and then actually and uh, and when I listen to you you know you 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 are brilliant because you've got such a strong presence a strong you're so strong vocally as well um and I just I just love the way you know you totally understand about phrasing jokes you totally understand. but do you think you did that at the beginning I mean is this has this been a kind of learning learning curve a learning journey it has definitely been a learning curve I think what is helpful is having been a fan of stand-up you sort of absorb a lot by mm. osmosis because because stand up, yeah. what good stand up does is it makes you think you're just watching someone monologuing at you, telling you stories, telling you anecdotes. But that actually, that's not what they're doing. Everything, it, you know, you might hear what you think is an anecdote, but that anecdote is broken down into set up punchline, set up punchline all the way through. Mm. And it's a particular mm. rhythm. So that's why it's different. So when you hear your mate Dave down the pub telling his story, you're like looking at your watch going are you going to get to the end of this or because they mm. haven't put in the punchlines on the way you know so yeah. stand-up has a rhythm it's like learning a language in a way and if you've watched a lot of stand-up a lot of that rhythm just gets into your head naturally you know without you really knowing that's what it is and so when you then start to write your own jokes you have a bit of a feel for what 
the rhythm is and what will work and what yeah. won't and and then yeah. the more you do it the more so when you start off you know you have a lot of jokes that will fail whereas now where I'm when I'm writing new material I have a much better hit rate I've got a much better yeah. sense of what sometimes something you're absolutely convinced is going to work just simply doesn't yeah. and you can't work out why yeah. mm. but a lot of the time you just sort of go oh yeah that'll work that won't because that hasn't got the right cadence or the right there's some sounds are just funnier some words are just funnier yes, and you just yes, get to yes, a sense are. of what that yes. is the more you do it it's just practice yeah yeah and, yeah and i'm sort of really one thing that really intrigues me because you do that stand up and you do topical stuff you know on things like the news quiz and mock the week and so on is is the writing process for you different depending on whether you're doing uh, topical stuff or a or a stand-up show that's going to tour for a while yeah, it's, I mean, I never really set out to be a, a topical comedian, but what <laughs> happened is I've just, because I was such a Radio 4 nerd growing up and I loved mm. the news quiz, was my favourite show. I used to listen to it with my dad. And um, so I sort of fell into it by accident, really, because I, I did, in 2011, I won the BBC New Comedy Award. You and did. I did an interview with a, a magazine um afterwards and in it they said what are your comedy ambitions and i was like oh i'd love to do the news quiz and it just so happened that victoria lloyd who was producing the news quiz at the time she read that article and she contacted me on facebook and said (laughs) would you like to come in and do a day's writing on news quiz and i couldn't believe my luck because you know i i was a working class girl i wasn't one of these people who you know went to university and thought they well I i mean i did go to university but i didn't join the footlights or do any of that stuff that is the way in and I just didn't think this girl from Maidstone would never get a foot in the door at Radio Comedy. I didn't know how you did it. There was no pathway. There was no, you mm. know, route that you take. So the fact that they Facebooked me and said, do you want to come in and do a day on it? I was like, this doesn't happen in real life. This is not. <laughs> so I went in and did that. And I found it really hard because I, I hadn't been writing topical jokes. That wasn't my thing. You know, I was writing very personal material. Mm-hmm. But I was like, right, I'm going to need to learn how to do this because I really want to do this. And so I sort of had to teach myself how to do that really and by talking to other comedians that did do it and then eventually they you know a few years down the line they asked me to be a panelist on news quiz and then eventually to host a series of it so and and so by doing that I then sort of got a name as a topical comedian and then you know got asked to do mock the week and I did stand up for the week on channel four as well and so it was quite by accident it was never my got it was just through my love of news quiz that I sort of fell into that role and and I do it I find it more stressful writing topical stuff I think mm-hmm. because um I do like doing it but it's um the turnover is so quick obviously so for example mm-hmm. we filmed Mock the Week this week on Wednesday so you're writing the jokes on Tuesday you know and they've got to be good enough to go on telly the next day so that's quite mm-hmm. a pressure and we also yeah. for something like Mock the Week which is a half hour show we film for three hours and we cover so many stories that don't make the edit because you have to make sure you've got enough in the bank because the news changes so quickly now. So, you know, even if mm. we record on Wednesday and it goes out on Friday, you might we might have done material about a joke on Wednesday that by Friday is just completely out of date. No one yeah. can even remember what the story yeah. was, yeah. you know. So it's an exercise in writing a lot of jokes for the bin, like doing topical comedy. You write a lot of jokes that will never see the light of day because that moment's gone and those jokes aren't relevant anymore. So it can feel very, uh, quite dispiriting when you write a really good joke that no one's ever gonna hear. <laughs> you know? um, but that's just, that's just how it is with topical comedy. So it, it is, it's a different discipline in that way, 
and also it's because you just don't have the time to hone anything so yeah. like material personal yeah. material material about anything else i'm doing in a show you've got time to hone it and tweak it and reword mm. it and when you're writing it the day before and doing it the next day it either works or it doesn't you haven't yeah. got time to go oh if i change that word then that might work mm. you know you haven't got that time so it can be a bit dispiriting so do, yeah. do you ever get for something like mop the week you know you've got to get the stuff out there do you ever get sort of mm. joke joke blindness you know joke joke blankness you think oh my god does your, your head think oh god i can't i can't think oh, today yeah. i can't think to, do you do you all yeah. the time and i have to just really? what i've i've learned about myself is that sitting at a blank screen or a blank notebook it, that's not gonna make it come you know so mm. i'll have to go and walk the dog or walk around the block or go for a swim or do something else so that part of my brain can kick back in because it's not going to kick back in while I'm sitting stressing about it. Because the more you stress that you're not writing, the less yeah. likely you're going to get in a frame of mind where you can write, you know. So sometimes, and that's a really hard thing to do when you've got a limited amount of time. It's a hard mm. thing to learn that sometimes the best use of that time isn't sitting writing. It is to go and do something else and come back to it. And you'll actually be more mm. productive than if you sat at a screen for eight hours. Mm. Um, and that was a lesson that took me a long time to learn. And sometimes you just look at a story and you can't see the wood for the trees. You can't see the funny in it, um, you know, and it's just not gripping you. And so that's when I might talk to someone else and go, I can't find anything funny in this. And they'll be like, well, what about that angle? Or what about that angle? Like, oh, mm. yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Come at it from that angle. So it's, yeah. It's, and, and the other thing as well you have now, with particularly with topical comedy, is all the first jokes you think of are going to have been on Twitter in the within oh, 30 gosh. seconds of the story breaking yes, you know someone all the obvious jokes are out there already and sometimes you just have to go well i'm just going to have to make the same joke that everyone else has thought of because there's nothing else mm. to be had on this story um mm. or you have to go you have to sort of work through those you go right get all the obvious jokes out of my head right bin them now let's see if i can find something not as obvious come at it from mm. a different angle you know and there's different ways you could do that i had a really good um bit of advice once that I've used ever since from Jason Manford gave me this advice with writing stand-up about having um I've got a post-it note above my desk with a list of all the school subjects on so maths English history science whatever and so when I'm writing about something I look at that because that helps me think about it in a different way so you go well have you thought about the historical perspective of this have you thought about <gasps> the you know how this mm. might be in different countries have you thought about you mm. know and it's just a way of looking at something right through different lenses. Um, mm. I know some people use like the categories in Trivial Pursuit is another way to do it. To go, right, if I thought about this from a science point of view, if I thought about it from a nature point of view, if I thought about mm. it from, you know, just to make you look at it from different angles to try and think mm. about things in a way no one else has. Mm. Yes, yeah, so sort of refire your imagination yeah, looking at it, yeah, yeah exactly. it, 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 different ways. Okay. And and mm. what's interesting because you're so dynamic and you do so much, Angela. And it, it, it's you're a fantastic role model in many ways. But what oh, what God. I'm interested in what what were you doing with this energy before you became a stand-up, Before you entered the world of comedy, where did you put this energy? I think well, it's it's pretty tragic, really. I think I put it into being sad a lot of the time, which is really um, I, I was kind of. Uh, I, I say this sort of sounds glib, but comedy really saved me in a lot of ways because I was in my 20s. I wasn't a happy person, really. And I, I have since been diagnosed with ADHD. Last year, I got diagnosed mm -hmm. with ADHD. Mm -hmm. And I know it feels like everyone is being diagnosed with ADHD at the moment. But I, I think there's a reason for that. And that is that people are understanding it more. And it does affect a big percentage of people uh, being neurodivergent and particularly comedians and I think there's no surprise that a lot of us 
are currently being diagnosed with ADHD because there's a reason we do this job and not other jobs. You know, the amount of times in my life people have said, oh, I couldn't do your job. And I think, mm. well, you work in an office nine to five, I couldn't do yours, <laughs> you know, or mm. it's, it's, it's horses for courses. And there's a reason we're attracted to this job, a job that, uh, you know, cause people say I, I couldn't do it, I, the public speaking element of it, all of that. But I'm actually quite one on one. I'm quite a socially awkward person, you know, at a party or anything like that. I can be very socially awkward and very withdrawn, whereas on a stage, all those social anxieties aren't there because I know it's always my turn to speak. I know I'm not talking over anyone. I know I'm not going, oh God, have I not let them say what they need to say? Have I trodden on, you know, am I being weird? Am I being this? Am I being that? All those anxieties are gone. On a stage, it's it's just me and I don't even have to give them eye contact and I can just speak and be free. And that's why for, for someone like me who's got ADHD and these other issues, that is a, a more comfortable place to be than to be at a dinner party, for example, mm. um, or to mm. be in a room full of people I don't know very well, trying not to say anything stupid. Um, so, and also it's having that control over, I've always been clumsy and awkward and a bit weird. In stand-up comedy, I can own that. I can, I can say the things before anyone else can. I can say the horrible things about myself. I can acknowledge that, yes, I know, I do this, that and the other, aren't I an idiot? You know, I, I can acknowledge all of that so I'm not feeling worried about it or anxious about it. So I think um, the, the, that energy I had went into really negative things beforehand because I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy in the jobs I was doing. I wasn't happy in the life I had. And then I found this life that suits me so brilliantly because no two days are the same. And mm. I'm not going to the same place every day with the same people eating the same lunch. You know, I'm getting that dopamine hit that it turns out I need to survive. I'm getting it from a million different places every day. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's it's been, uh, it sounds really corny to say it, but it's been properly life-changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finding yeah, this yeah. job. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't sound, it's I think it's amazing actually. And and it's like a salvation. So it must have felt when you did that first gig and you started to get a response like you were home, like you said, yeah. this is it. Did, mm. did you, do you regret not doing it sooner, Angela? I often do. I often do because regret's not the right word because I, I think sometimes I think if when I think of who I was when I was in my 20s I didn't have the confidence I didn't have the yeah. confidence and I would never have done it and I didn't have the life experience either there's something about having had proper jobs had a bit of a life before you start writing that gives you something to draw on you know if I'd if I'd come straight out of university into stand-up comedy what have I got that's relatable you know because if your whole life has been traveling to gigs, then, well, the audience can't relate to that. Whereas I've got mm. a life that I can draw from that they can relate to. The thing that frustrates me about it, particularly as a woman, unfortunately, is that because I started a bit later, you know, women approaching 50 aren't attractive to TV producers, unfortunately, still. Still. And that's the frustrating thing is that, you know, I get turned down for things because I'm too old. And you're no. just like, ah, oh, if I started at 25 instead of 35, then maybe I'd still be able in with a shout for these things. It's changing. It is changing. And it's certainly better than it was, I think, even 10 years ago. And But you still know that in a, in a TV producer's head, as a woman, I'm past it. I'm getting past it to a, to a certain thing. That, that is so shocking. That is so shocking that's still happening. It I really mean, is. Yeah. And, and, and it's and not also, for men, you know. 
Oh, no, God, no. It's so, no, so no. Well. And actually, um, you know, w- what is so frustrating as well, because you are somebody who is actually ageless to me. I, you know, well, I, I don't look at... No, I wish it's I true. was. But, but it's true, but it's true. <laughs> yes, you know, yes. some people, you think, oh, yeah, you know, you put them in some category, but actually you have an energy about you, which is ageless. And that really... Yeah upsets me that actually if that's mm. happened because you're just brilliant because you're so dynamic you're so full of energy and and it's what's it's what we need i mean of course female newscasters say the same thing don't they you know or or, or um uh, the say you know and that saddens me like janie says to think that that's still going on that's absolute rubbish it's really yeah. awful it's just shocking you think we sort of got past that don't you? And I, you know, you look at you look at the days when you were only allowed to have one woman on a panel show. You know, like mm. if you were on What the Week, then mm. then there weren't allowed to be any other women on it because you'd got the woman. And you sort of hope mm. that these things have have gone and changed. But yeah. absolutely shocking now if you're only allowed you know if you're only allowed to have young women on. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. So the whole only one woman thing. I think it just took people a long time to realise that female wasn't a genre of comedy. <laughs> You know, that, that actually we're not all the same and we don't all talk yeah. about this. And people have got this sort of collective idea that we all talk about periods and that's all we talk mm. about. And I don't know mm. any comics that do really, or mm. not many. And mm. also, do you think if men had periods, they wouldn't talk about it? Oh my <laughs> God, it's all they talk yeah, yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. Are, we are 51% of the population. Why shouldn't we yeah. talk about the things that affect our lives? Yeah. And yeah. that's why I won't shy away from... So a lot of people have said to me when I was starting out, said stop talking about how old you are because you look younger than you are. And I was like, I'm not going to stop talking about how old I am because this is my frame of reference. If, you know, if I'm 35 and people think I'm 28, well, they're soon going to find out I'm not when I'm talking about things from my life. You know, why, why would I get myself in a situation where I have to think what I'm supposed to talk about or... And, and like now, for example, so I've just started taking HRT and I'm perimenopausal and all that stuff's happening. Hey, oh, it's brilliant, mm. isn't it? But, you know, I'm like, I'm not going to not talk about that in my stand up just because I'm fright because people are frightened about middle aged women. You know, that's their problem. I can't take that responsibility because I write about my life and that's yeah. what's happening in my life. And I my responsibility or my, I care much more about the middle-aged women that are coming to my shows that want to see themselves reflected because they're certainly not seeing themselves on telly. I want them to see me, you know, rather than worrying about what, let's face it, young men or younger people than me that are the gatekeepers with TV, you know, are worried about... I always say, like, when you get to a certain age as a woman, it's like people go, well, you don't have kids and you're going for the menopause so what what is your purpose why are you here you know so you're like a waiter at nando's what are you for (laughs) why does the world need you you know and i just think there's so many women out there that are in exactly that situation Mm. that don't aren't represented anywhere Mm. um you know and that's why i talk a lot about being voluntarily childless as well that's a Mm. really important thing to me because in everything and actually the archers has been guilty of this recently i got a bit cross about it because um you know there's a storyline with um fallon doesn't want children but harrison Mm. does Mm. and every Mm. single time there is anyone in a drama that wants children their partner doesn't Uh, sorry Mm. that doesn't want children their partner does Mm. and i have i can't think of a single place in any soap opera where there's been a happy married couple who happily have chosen not to have children and have a lovely life and are very pleased with that decision and don't Mm. regret it at all Mm. and there's Mm. loads of us there's loads of us that have made Mm. that decision particularly Mm. now more than ever yet no you know you're not allowed to be that so Mm. those things are really important to me that you know people that aren't represented on tv or aren't represented in the well i can i'm not going to pretend to not be that person 
to please, you know, TV mm. producers or whatever. And that's also the nice thing about things like this, like podcasts. Uh, there, there's yeah. a mm. democratization now of entertainment, which is long overdue. That yeah. if you have got something you want to make creatively, you can make it. And there mm. aren't gatekeepers. And, mm. you know, there's people now that are playing live at the Apollo that did it through doing YouTube or did it through doing putting their mm. own stuff out there in their own way. And that is glorious, I think. Yeah, mm. yeah, us mm. too. I mean, the reason that we started this really was because we're both getting towards 70 and we're nowhere, you know? Mm. We just mm. don't exist at all. We're just, yeah. we're just battling grannies or old age pensioners. Mm. Mm. Well, that's it. That's mm. how you're seen as if you're either some sort of miserable old battle axe or you're, yeah. you're not allowed to be approaching 70 and be sexy and happy and have a healthy, happy relationship. And, you know, God forbid. Not, there's, God forbid. And, and what is even more frustrating about that is that's exactly the demographic of people that still watch terrestrial television. Yes, you know? exactly. It's exactly. not it's not twenty year olds aren't watching it. So why are you mm. making so much content for them when it's my mum mm. who sits at home on a Saturday night watching telly? You mm. know, why is she not getting represented anywhere? Why it it, it it it's so frustrating. And then of course you moan about it and then you're sour grapes because you're not on telly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So you yeah. just go, well, yeah, what can you do? Until the people who are on telly go, hey, guys, wouldn't it be nice if we had some other people represented here? Mm. That's what needs to happen. And and that's what started happening, like, with, with there being not enough women on panel shows and things like that, is it took the guys on the panel shows to go, do you know there's some really good female comics that could be on here mm. as well? Because mm. while we go, why aren't we on the shows? It looks like people are going, well, maybe you're not good enough. So shut mm. up, <laughs> you know. Mm. Um, mm. It takes the people who are there to not pull up the ladder behind them and to welcome people yeah. in, yeah. really. Well, and you know, you're, somebody's doing a wonderful job of that. Mm. Um, Thank you. And uh, you're talking TV, I have to say, I have to mention Richard Osman's House of Games because I think <laughs> you, were the, you were the first person to win all five days, weren't you? Still, still the at the moment, still the only person, I think. Yeah, <gasps> yeah. It's Friday today oh, and there's so someone bright. on four, so. Well, oh. I mean, the competition wasn't up to much on the. <laughs> <laughs> That's not fair. I, do you know we had such a lovely day filming that that week, the, the yeah. original one I did. It was so much fun. I loved doing that show, and um, I, I just sort of word games and crosswords and things like that are just mm -hmm. my thing, and. Uh, you know, a lot of people gave me stick for it, but I'm just like, well, you wouldn't have given me stick if I'd been good at football or if I'd been good at, you know, let me yeah. have the thing I'm good at. And it just happens to be silly word games on telly. I've just realised oh, I've got this, my yeah. Richard Osman, right behind me there, my Richard Osman Russian dolls. I don't know if you can see oh, them. Oh, no, oh, yes. <laughs> I've got all my prizes. What, what prizes you had? <laughs> I've got, so I've got the Russian dolls. I've got the yeah. uh, wheelie case. Oh, I that's got, the um, top one. That's the top one. I love my wheelie case. Um, I got, I did get the dartboard, but I gave that to Denise Van Outen because she, her daughter wanted one. So I gave that to her. Um, I can't remember because I've done two. Because I did a Champion of Champions one oh, as well. Oh, that's right. Of course you did. So, um, and I won four of the five on that. So I've got quite a lot of Richard Osman's face around the house. <laughs> that's amazing. But you know, you're so fast. That's the thing. You're so, you know, you're not just bright. A lot of people are bright, but you're bright and very, very quick with it as well. Well, oh, I guess you need you. that, don't you, to be stand up as well. You need to, do. you need to, you know, your brain needs to work quite rapidly, doesn't it, you know? Yeah, I think that's why comedians do well on House of Games. I think because we're word mm. people and yeah. we're used to having yeah. to think quickly, think on your feet. So I think that's mm. why comedians do tend to do quite well on it. 
Yeah. yeah. So, so when you were a little girl, so I keep harping back because I'm interested. Yeah, so, were, were, were you a jokes girl? I mean, did you write lots of jokes when you were little? Or were you a great storyteller when you were little? Where does the word thing fit in when you were young? I think I was a storyteller. I think I remember. I can remember at school. I always used to get good marks for my stories that I would write, and I would always try and make them funny. And my dad was a proper sort of raconteur type. You know, he was, he loved telling stories. He loved having the attention of the room and, you know, telling these mm. anecdotes that, you know, we'd all heard a hundred times before we'd roll our eyes, go, oh God, he's off again. You know, but people <laughs> were, and, and so I think it was from, from him, both my mum and dad loved comedy and loved watching right. comedy and would take me to live comedy. I went, when I was 14, my mum took me to see Victoria Wood live. Um, you know, my dad and mum both loved Monty Python. And so it was from, um, it was always their yeah. comedy and laughing in our family. My mum is one of um, nine brothers and sisters. Um, and so I've got lots of cousins, lots of family and we get together and that's the, that's the currency in our family is making each other laugh, you know, and it's always been that. Um, and so, yeah, it's it very much part of, of growing up, I think. So I don't, I didn't specifically write jokes but i was aware of the nice feeling of when someone laughs at what you say yeah 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 it's it's it's, it's so interesting because y- you know what we become eventually y- you you can see the seeds of it early on even if it's not you know a, a straight journey through there you look back and think, oh yeah that's where that was and mm. that's how it's come out now yeah yeah definitely yeah. definitely because i think uh, when i was at school as so i'm quite shy i was quite i was never sort of I always had friends and I was always, um, I wasn't unpopular, but I, I wasn't one of the cool kids. You know, I wasn't one of the, the, mm. the I went to a girls grammar school cause I grew up in Kent where they still have the 11 plus and stuff. So I, I you know, I wasn't one of the, the pretty girls that, you know, or, or one of the cool girls. I was sort of in the middle somewhere, just getting on with it quite academically bright, but also, you know, was able to make people laugh, I guess, but I wasn't a, a performer really and so I think a lot of people that knew me when I was younger sort of find out what I do now and go what that girl that one are you sure that one (laughs) is doing it Um, and same in my in my family really there's there's a lot more extrovert people in my family than I am a lot more um sort of lots of musicians in my family lots of singers lots of and I was growing up it was all funny and it was always chaos but I was an observer of it a lot more than I was a participant but I think that all goes in you know you sort of absorb it all and then go, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. And then sort of work your own way out how to do it. When you were at school, thinking of school, were you, because you're such a history buff. I mean, the, the We're History podcast, I think, I've been enjoying that so much. Oh, over the thank years. you. Well, because I know like everything about the Tudors, because that's what we seem to do that year after year <laughs> at school. And um, quite a bit about ancient Egypt and nothing about modern history even though I lived yeah. through quite a lot of it so uh, it's yeah. it's just been brilliant to catch up on all this stuff that I knew nothing about and well, were you, you interested in history at school not at all no and I think for that reason is it didn't grab me at school at all. I wasn't interested still not interested really in kings and queens and you know the sort of history of of um like rich people basically I was more interested yeah, yeah. in social history I was more interested yeah. in in everyday lives and and so it, yeah it never grabbed me so I didn't do GCSE in history I didn't do an A-level in history or any of that and it wasn't until I was a bit older really um and started reading a bit more independently about things so for me like Cold War history is my thing yeah. and and the, I do the podcast with John O'Farrell who you met like a brilliant comedy writer he was one of the original head writers on Spitting Image and a very funny man yeah. and um also 
um, he wrote some sort of funny history books as well. He's a novelist. He writes musicals. He's a proper sort of, you know, great writer. Um, and I approached him because I'd read his history books and loved the sort of tone of them and knew I wanted to do a mm. podcast in that sort of tone where, you know, we, people can learn, but it's not dry. And, but, you know, yeah. we have a no, bit of fun. a laugh and a bit of a... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And... Um, and luckily for me, he was up for it. So we started doing it. And uh, it's funny. So he has to remind me that our podcast isn't just about the 20th century. You know, to like, <laughs> let's do an episode about the Black Death. Or let's do an episode about <laughs> something else. Oh, yeah, all right, then, fine, yeah. Um, but I just find, yeah, sort of more modern history fascinating. Particularly stuff I've lived through. Particularly Cold War stuff, you know, where mm. I was... The Berlin Wall came down on my 13th birthday. So I, I remember wow. it being on the news. I remember all that, mm. st- you know, to learn what actually happened yeah. and to, um, I just find it really fascinating. And there's a dream I have where I, I sort of go off and do a degree in uh, in modern history and then just for fun. But unfortunately, I can't afford to not work for three years to do that. So <laughs> maybe one day, maybe that's my retirement plan. <laughs> yeah, and why not? Why not? Yeah. Uh, how long does it take you to it sounds from the podcast like you take it in turns to lead on a particular mm. uh particular episode how long does it take you to research it because mm. you seem to have done a huge amount of reading a huge yes. amount of research on it <laughs> a lot is the answer to that um yeah. I, that's why we do sort of short series and then we have quite a long break between them because it's a passion project for john and i we really love doing it but it takes a lot of time because you have to yeah. read the books then digest them and then sort of regurgitate them in a funny way. So um, mm. it is a lot of prep for something that makes you no money. So that's why yeah. we don't didn't ever want to get ourselves in a position where it was something we dreaded having to do. So we just make them when we've got the time and we've got the energy, really. And that's mm. why we haven't done one for a few months because... Well, John's just had a musical open on Broadway, which is a pretty good excuse. And, you know, I had Edinburgh and things <laughs> like that. So, yeah, so we've had a little pause, but um, we are coming back. And, um, yeah, so it's a lot of work, but but it's I really love doing it. And, mm. yeah, um, and audiences seem to like it. You know, we, we've mm. it's steadily growing in listeners and stuff. Yeah. So hopefully we can we can keep doing it. Oh, it, it is. I mean, I, I, I really enjoy it too. And, and I was listening to the Perfumo one last night, actually. And ah, I, yeah. I get really yeah. reeled in. And I mean, that, that is some history that I do know something about. But it's the interaction between you. It's like, just, it's like I'm sitting there having a cup of tea, watching you both. You know, I'm in the lounge with you. And it's just <laughs> lovely. You're just feeding in different information. And it's, but, but like Janie, I, that was a question I was going to ask. I thought, My goodness, these people have done a huge amount of research on this. Uh, we do yeah, a lot. Yeah. I mean, what we tend to do is we'll record a couple of episodes episodes at a time so John will do all the research on one and then send me the notes and I'll do all the research on the other and send him the notes and you know we also do a bit more of reading of each other's so we're not just um like having to wing it but um what's really nice is because John and I didn't know each other before we so the the history of the podcast is that I think it was in 2014 he came to my uh, he just happened to come to my Edinburgh show. I'd never met him, but he came to my Edinburgh show and he tweeted afterwards to say that he'd been to my show and really enjoyed it. And so I followed him on Twitter and I'd read his books and stuff. And um, and then skip forward a few years, I had this idea that I wanted to do a history podcast and I wanted to do it with someone. And like I said, I'd read his books, knew I really liked the tone of them and I thought he'd be great, but he's probably a very busy man. He's not going to want to. And so I sent him a message just on Twitter and said, look, I've had this idea for a podcast I really want to do. I don't know how much time you've got, whether you'd be up for it. And apparently he asked his daughter, Lily, who's sort of in her mm. 20s, 
and said, you know, is this something I should do? And she said, yes, <laughs> is this something you should do? Right. And that was that. And so we made a couple. We just sort of, you know, didn't really know. And we've become really good friends. It's so lovely because mm. it just oh. worked. The dynamic just seems to yeah. work. And mm. we mm. both love our dogs and we both love beer. And so it always comes around to dogs and beer at some point. Mm. But there's a nice little bit of, you know, I, I sort of take the mickey out of him for being a posh old white bloke, you know, yes. and he <laughs> takes the mickey out of me for being common or whatever. You know, we just have this, <laughs> it's a really nice little energy. Mm. And, and that's what people say quite often. It's just like listening to a couple of people down the pub talking mm. about history rather than it being a, yeah. a it's, lesson. It's really, know. really lovely. Yeah, and it and, works oh, terribly thank well. Thank you. Uh, and I mean, th- really what comes over it. very, very strongly is that you are an absolute connoisseur of nuclear bunkers. <laughs> yes, so that is my. What? I mean, like all the episodes would be about Cold War and nuclear bunkers <laughs> if I could have it my way. Um, yeah, I mean, that came about in a really strange way. So I, I like I said, I sort of just as an adult started reading more about history and and particularly that. I think it all started. I had a little bit of an obsession with this East German history uh, communist east germany because of the berlin wall coming down on my birthday and it yeah. being such a big thing and i was learning german at school at the time and so our teacher obviously was very invested in what was happening in her home country mm-hmm. she was german and telling us all about it and and the fact that this was going on so geographically close to where we were was something that always fascinated me you know that this and and sort of german history in the 20th century fascinates me because so many regime changes in such a quick yeah, yeah. period of time that fascinates me that so um, I started sort of reading more and more about it. And then I, I, I read a book that was talking about um, sort of preparations for nuclear war in the Cold War. And I was living in Crystal Palace at the time in South London. Mm. And they were talking about these bunkers that had been built, uh, these Royal Observer Corps bunkers and also government bunkers. And it turned out there was one at the bottom of a block of flats in Crystal Palace. So I was like reading this book going, no, there we are. I walk past that block of flats every day. There's not a nuclear bunker there. So I walked up there and sure enough, they're in the basement. It's all locked up and you can't get in. But there's a, a sort of reinforced concrete nuclear bunker. I was like, oh, I need to find out more about these places. So then I just started learning more. And, and then I learned about the Royal Observer Corps, who were the, um, they'd be the people who in World War One had been plane spotters. But then they were sort yeah. of re designated in the cold war to be the people who if there'd been a nuclear fallout uh, nuclear bomb they would map the fallout and when it was dangerous to be outside and things like that and they have 1500 bunkers built all over the british countryside so i started mm-hmm. finding them like going out and finding them and going and some people are, some of them are, are privately owned some of them are opened as museums now and things like that and i just got obsessed with the whole royal observer corps and what they did and and actually, I got really involved with one in Dundee. Um, there's one and a Royal Observer Corps headquarters bunker, it's a big bunker. So I had my hen do in there last year. <laughs> so <laughs> me and, uh, me and uh, 12 friends went up to uh, a nuclear bunker. We slept in the dormitories and we um, had a great time. Um, yeah, yeah. So that that is my weird obsession. <laughs> Not a bad time to know about nuclear bunkers. Well, no, that's it. People aren't laughing now at my obsession. No. I'll tell you that. There is one thing I need to ask you about, uh, just because because I, I heard you talk about this a month or so ago, I was at the Sunnies and we were having dinner, weren't we? And mm-hmm. you pulled out a bottle of salad cream. We had a very yeah. long discussion about salad cream. Mm-hmm. <gasps> and, then, and then I read that you were, or heard you talking about how salad cream Next to nuclear bunkers, salad cream was one of your major obsessions in life. So we have to ask you to share some salad cream recipes. I love salad cream. Honestly, if they stopped making salad cream, I'd be devastated. I am a, you know, I'm a working class girl. What can I say? I like salad cream. And my, one of my favourite things is 
everyone just thinks this is disgusting, but my comfort food is, and it's something I used to eat when I was little. I don't know how it ever came about, but I will have just a bowl of peas with salad cream. Just mix peas oh. in salad cream. Oh my I God. I can see Delicious. that. <laughs> oh. When I was a student, well, I, I used I'm a great... to eat salad cream sandwiches. Did oh, you? Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Yes. yes, well, I like I like salad cream. I prefer salad cream to mayonnaise because this is what we were we were talking about, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, discussion. Yeah. And but yeah. I can remember years ago. I don't know if you've been to Holland, but going to Holland and they have you can buy chips and salad cream. That's what they have. Sort of these little little shops Ooh. on the roadside. And I was in seventh heaven. So if you go to Holland, oh. look for that because they're into salad Ooh, cream. Oh, lovely, well. lovely. Yeah, a little tip. There. I, I don't mind mayonnaise, <laughs> but salad cream. It's got to be yeah. Salad, yeah. If I had to choose, yeah. I, I'm, salad cream would win. I'm, I'm with you there, I'm afraid. I'm, yeah. with, I'm with you. Salad cream and a bit of lettuce. Oh, that, that, that's the thing for me. I'd it like just that makes salad palatable, oh, you yes. know. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Yes. Absolutely. It's got a bit yeah. of a kick. It's got a bit of a kick. Mayonnaise, yeah. mayonnaise is just a bit boring, I find. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I agree. Now, now, the other thing, the other thing is, of course, um, that I read uh, just last night, actually, that you're also a figure skater. <laughs> oh, that is now that is pushing it. <laughs> uh, didn't you used I, to I do did, that? Yeah, I did when I was little. I so I, for my ninth birthday, I used to. I grew up when Torval and Dean were winning Olympic medals, you know, and it was all very in the eighties. And for my ninth birthday, my auntie bought me um, six figure skating lessons, and I went along, and I absolutely loved it. And I did it until I was about fourteen. Um, so I got to, yeah, I've got grade nine in figure and free skating. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, I couldn't do any of the things I used to be able to do now, but I used to do little Christmas shows at, um, the ice bowl in Gillingham in Kent. And I used to do the Christmas shows there and yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. But, um, I, I, t well, I'll tell you this now cause I didn't get, but I, year before last, I auditioned for dancing on ice. Did um, you? Well, I, I was to ask you that. Okay. Yeah. And, and so um, I went along to the audition and I got to skate with Karen Barber, mm. who's their sort of head trainer. But I also I knew who she was, obviously, from the 80s. Yeah. And so I was really excited and I skated with and loads of it came back. It was really because uh, I, you know, I hadn't put on a pair of skates for years. Um, yeah. And so mm. I got on the ice and I was a bit wobbly at first. And then I was like, oh, hang on. No, I can skate. I remember. And it all just sort of started coming back. And I really loved it. But um, unfortunately, they didn't. They didn't choose me, so you know what can I? What can oh, you do? Yeah. Um, Idiots. <laughs> maybe maybe another year wonderful. they will, because I would love yeah. to do it and properly go and learn how to do it again. Mm. Um, yeah, unfortunately, it's not a nice rink near where I live because I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll just go and learn again anyway. Maybe I'll go and have mm. some lessons. But I did in the pandemic. I did buy. I'm such a cliche, but I did buy roller skates in the pandemic. And um, where I live in Brighton, there's a big park that's got an old Victorian velodrome in it, an outdoor velodrome. I know it. So I do in the summer, I take my roller skates and skate around the velodrome. So, God. yeah. But you, you said earlier that you were clumsy, but you can't be clumsy if you can balance on what? skates. Both Sunny and I have got terrible balance. We, it's all we can do to stand up on two feet. Yeah. Well, yeah. I've got dyspraxia, um, but on wheels and on skates, that seems to not, and it was like when I was little because I remember my dad go when I said so I want to do figure skating he was like don't I don't think that's a good idea <laughs> like you know I, I once ended up in A&E with concussion because I walked through a door and missed you know like <laughs> that's, that's how clumsy I was so my, my dad obviously had these visions of oh my god she's gonna do herself some real damage but I did it I for some reason on the ice or on wheels 
suddenly I can be graceful. But as soon as I'm on my own big oh. flat feet, <laughs> that all goes out the window. Oh, so yeah, I think I'd be terrible on Strictly. <laughs> oh God, Sunny, perhaps we should take up ice skating and see if that... Maybe that, maybe yeah, we'd be okay. Yeah, maybe we'd stand upright. Maybe we would. Maybe no, we, actually, we, I did try it years ago yeah. in altering a ice rink when I was about ooh, ooh, nine or ten. Hopeless. I, yeah. I, I couldn't even get onto the ice rink. I mean, no. I, got, I got the skates on and I wet myself because I was laughing so much. I couldn't get from the actual changing room onto the ice rink. I mean, it was hysterical. Oh, so there's yeah. no hope for me. There's no hope for me. I tell you. <laughs> oh, God. Me neither. Oh, I remember... Dear tottering around the ice rink in Birmingham when I grew up hanging onto the rail and oh, well then done. getting stranded with with the gap and just being completely unable to move so yeah. I remember my dad I, being we, like that I remember making my dad put some skates on we'd go come and come and have a go and he just clinging onto the side and then just couldn't bend anything me. like his legs yeah. were just yes. straight and he's like bend your knees I can't <laughs> <laughs> It is, it is really, if you are hopeless, it is completely incapacitating. I mean, it's just yeah. sort of, you're stuck there, you know. Oh, so well done, oh, Angela. Dear. I mean, it's brilliant, well you know, done. that you did all that. And grade nine, hey, you know, that is, that oh. is brilliant. But one, one more thing, I'm, I'm jumping about here, but of course you've got your lovely Tina, haven't you? Your little cockapoo. I have um, my little Tina. Uh, it, is, is she a joy? She is. I absolutely, you know, so she's um, she's nearly 14. She's our little cockapoo. And um, we, when we got her, my husband was very ambivalent about getting a dog. He was sort of, mm. and I was like, look, I don't want kids, but a dog is a deal breaker. I, you know, <laughs> I've wanted a dog my whole adult life, but my life, you know, jobs, whatever, just haven't been that that would be possible. And it was 2019. And I had a little chunk of time where I wasn't very busy with work. Or I was writing something. So I was at home. And I thought, if we're going to get a dog, we do it now because I've got time to train her and, you know. Yeah. And um, and so, and also I'm quite severely allergic to a lot of dogs, which is why I've got a poodle cross breed, um, because then you're less likely to be allergic to them. And um, so she's, her mum was a cockapoo, dad was a poodle, so she's mostly poodle. Mm-hmm. And, um, and my husband, it was so funny because... He was like, okay, well, I know that's what you want. And he is an animal lover. He's just never had pets of his own. So it's not really something he'd thought about. And he said, well, you know, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to be responsible dog. You know, I will do that. I will help. I will take her for walks. I will do all of this. And what he didn't expect is that he would fall head over heels in love with her. And from the moment we went to visit her when she was a puppy, she played such a blinder because she'd just sort of woken up. We went around there. She was sort of six weeks old. And we picked her up and she was the little runt of the litter. She was the last one left that no one wanted. So I was like, well, then we're having her. And he picked her up and she, he was, it was in January. And he had a big winter coat on and she just sort of stuck his, her head in his coat like that. And oh. it just melted completely. Oh. And honestly, she has him wrapped around her little paw. I tell you, <laughs> the thing, the times I come, she does this thing. She, we, we, we sat on the sofa watching telly and I'll suddenly turn around and he'll be on the floor and she'll be in his seat. I was like, how does that happen? And he'll go, I don't know. And what she does, she gets a toy, like pretends she wants to play with him. So he'll get off the sofa and play with her. And she jumps in his seat and he just stays on the floor. <laughs> like, he doesn't even realise so she's done it to him. It's so, so she really does rule the house. And we said, you know, oh, 
she's not our baby. We're not going to be those sorts of dog mm. owners, you know, where we're mummy mm. and daddy and she. But we totally are. Like she's brought out something in us we didn't know was there. Mm. <laughs> oh. oh, they they do. Listen, during, during yeah. lockdown, we we got um two little Jack Russell Terriers from from the oh. Dogs Trust uh, because our cat we had oh. to put our cat to sleep. And you know, I wasn't sure oh. about these two. I thought, oh God, no more dogs. We've had dogs before, but actually, they worm their way into your heart. Did three years later, oh, and the, the little one, their brother and sister, but the little one is got sort of full of allergies and all and she's she's not terribly well a lot of the time and and the other week she actually collapsed in the garden and I thought oh my goodness oh, my goodness no. she's died she hadn't actually it was lack of oxygen zone and I got her to the vets but my heart just was in my mouth and I belted down that garden at the, the rate of knots you know and I thought oh. this dog has now wormed away completely into my heart and they do they, they do, do don't they I yeah. mean, they, they do just, because they're so loving and they're so giving mm. and they're so trusting mm. and you feel so responsible because you know, I love my little Tina, but she would not survive in the wild. She's not the brightest thing, yes. you know. And she, she also, she has quite bad food allergies. So she, she can't eat meat, my dog. Oh, so um, I know a vegetarian dog who lives in Brighton. Who would have thought it? But um, uh. that's what she is. And uh, so, you know, you just think, oh, you're so useless in many ways. Because she was the little runt of the litter. And so you feel so responsible for her. But they give you so much. It's so much yeah. love and so much. And I just, I can't imagine life without her. She's part of the family yeah. and she absolutely has us. She's in charge for sure. But Did, does she ever come with got... you to gigs? She does. Did yeah, she ever come with you to gigs, Sandra? Yeah. Yes, yeah, she does. Before the um, before the pandemic, there was, I did a tour in 2019 and she came on tour with me. She was brilliant. Um, but now my husband, since the pandemic, so my husband works in IT and he works from home now. So mm, she great. tends to just, it's just easier for her to stay at home. Um, but yeah, when he was mm. in the office every day, she used to come with me to gigs and she was great. She loved it. Um, she, they're just such good company. They're so, yeah. you know, mm. oh, she's brilliant. I love her. Yeah. Oh. And she really got us through the pandemic, you know, because it makes you, you have to go out and walk them. You can't. Yeah, you know, yeah, if you're yeah. feeling a bit low or you're feeling a bit... Well, she's like, well, I don't care how you feel. You, you've got to take me to the park. Come on. Mm, <laughs> you know, mm, it's really good absolutely. for your mental health, that, I think. They're brilliant. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, how yeah. did you cope with lockdown? Was it, was it a nightmare for you? Do you know, I, I feel bad because it wasn't really. We were all right. I think for a lot of comedians, it was really hard because obviously... I mean, I lost a lot of work. A lot of work just disappeared. Mm. But I am lucky mm. in that my husband had a full-time job working in IT that he could continue to do from home. So we had his salary coming in, which covers our mortgage. And, you know, so we weren't worried about money in that way that a lot of people were. And I did get little outlets. You know, I got I hosted a series of news quiz from home. I, I did mm. bits and bobs online and, th you know, and I was also writing stuff at the time. So... I was fine, really. Um, mm. I did miss, you know, seeing people. I missed seeing my uh, comedian friends and doing my job. And mm. But compared to how a lot of people had it, we were all right. We're very lucky where we live. We're surround, you know, I'm in Brighton. It's a nice place. If you're going to be locked down, be locked down by the sea and surrounded yeah. by nice parks, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we were, we were lucky, really. And I just in, in some ways even I think just before the lockdown I'd, I'd burnt out without really realizing mm. I'd burnt mm. out I mm. you know you know what it's like when you're self-employed and I think particularly if you come from a sort of working class background it's very hard to take a break yeah it's very hard to turn things down yep. and go actually no I need time mm. not working yep. because you're always worried that if I say no they won't ask me again yeah you know and you end up in a situation where you haven't taken a break you haven't stopped really 
And I'd got to that point without realising it. So when the lockdown came and it was this enforced break, mm-hmm. I think I actually needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, for me, I think it was a good thing that it made me sort of reevaluate a few things and go, okay, well, you know, you're, you're surviving as the, you and your husband are surviving mm-hmm. without your income. So maybe you don't need to say yes to everything. <laughs> maybe mm, you can start yeah, saying yes yeah. to the things that you want to do rather than mm. you know this panic that everything's going to dry up and disappear so i think that's yeah, really think really interesting it's good yeah i mm. think it was you know for a lot of people as well and maybe a lot of us freelancers you know whatever I, I, the same thing happened to me i just was realized i was going at life at 100 miles an hour and there was no time to stop there was no time to think and suddenly that enforced stoppage as it were you suddenly thought hang on there is time here there is time and I don't have to hurtle around like this and it did make me reassess like you you know um coming back afterwards and thinking "Mm -mm, I need just to take the time take time actually take time I don't have to go at this at 100 miles an hour because I don't think as human beings we're really yet programmed for all that and I think we can do ourselves a lot of damage uh, if we're absolutely not and you're supposed to you know i think particularly as a woman you're supposed to be able to do it all aren't you you're supposed yeah, to be yeah, able yeah, to do yeah. it all absolutely. and without a, and, and sometimes you just can't and, and one of the i mean the, the best thing i did during that first lockdown was i bought a sewing machine and i'd never ever used a sewing machine before and i bought a sewing machine and my i've got a friend emma who's one of these very crafty people and she mm. bless her it was so lovely on a wednesday evening me and another friend kirsten we'd do a zoom with emma every wednesday evening with a bottle of wine and get on zoom and she taught us how to crochet first so she'd have a camera on her hands and then a camera yeah. on her face Brilliant. and we learned to crochet during that Brilliant. first lockdown and now i mean i crochet all the time now i fight when i'm watching telly whatever i'm so she's given me this skill i would never have had time to learn and then mm. so we did that first and then i was like well, I could do that. I'm going to buy a sewing machine. So I just always assume, because I'm a bit dyspraxic and a bit clumsy or whatever, that anything like that I wouldn't be able to do. And in that, in 2020, I made loads of my own clothes. And and they weren't perfect. They were full of mistakes or whatever. But it felt like such an achievement and a thing that I was doing mm. purely for me. And, and I really learned a lesson in that I could be a bit of a perfectionist sometimes. You go, and I think my whole life I've gone, well, what's the point in doing something if I can't be the best at it or yeah. one of the best mm-hmm. at it? Or, you know, if I can't, and actually learning, and that's why I was never good at art or drawing. You know, I teachers used to laugh at my artwork when I was at school, it was so bad. So I just assumed, well, I'm not good at that stuff, so don't do it. Whereas I suddenly mm-hmm. learned, it's not about the end result, it's about the process. And if you enjoy yeah. the process of doing something, then do it you know it doesn't matter and so that like christmas 2020 my poor family were getting all these awful handmade (laughs) crochet dolls and all sorts i was like i don't care if you like them or not i made them with love and that's all that counts absolutely absolutely Um, but actually you could go on the great sewing bee you could go on the great sewing bee now couldn't you i'd love celebrity there i would love to yeah i would really love to do that i mean i the problem this is my new dream is um we live in a flat and hopefully we'll be buying a house soon when we we wait and see what happens things will be up in the air at the minute but i just want a spare room where i can have my sewing machine set up all the time so that i could just go in and do a bit because the problem is at the moment i've got it all put away and it's such a ordeal to get it all out and do something and put it all away again and when you're just snatching bits of time when you're busy you just think i can't be bothered to get it all out so I just want a room where it's set up all the time. So when I've got a spare half an hour, I can go and do a little bit and then, yeah, start to make more stuff lovely. and learn more. Now, Angela, one of the things that we always ask our, our lovely uh, guests is, what would you say to your younger self? 
Ooh, well, gosh, so much. But I think one of the main things, this is something I've learned really recently. So since being diagnosed with ADHD, um, mm. I've sort of been reading a lot and learning a lot more about particularly how my brain works compared to a neurotypical brain and things like that. And one thing I kept reading, which was a phrase I wish somebody had said to me when I was younger, and that I would definitely say to my younger self, is that your thoughts about yourself aren't evidence about yourself. So what I mean by that is, you know, when you think, oh, I'm really bad at this or I'm really ugly or I'm really, you know, whatever. Have you got the evidence to back that up? Because if you haven't, then that that thought is lying to you and your thoughts will do that. They will, you know, work against you sometimes because it's that old ancient part of our brain that is trying to protect us from, you know, us being eaten by wolves on the savannah Mm. or whatever. So that's that part of that brain that tells you, oh, you sure you want to do that? Is that dangerous? But it's not giving you evidence. It's giving you fear. Mm. And just being aware of that has made such a big difference. But when I have these negative thoughts of going, I can't say yes to that job they've offered me because I won't be able to do it because I'll Mm. be bad at it. And you Mm. go, where's your evidence that you'll be bad at it? Where's Mm. your, when have you been bad at it before? When have you... And, and when you break it down and sometimes you go oh yeah I've got the evidence you're right you're not good at that mm. other times you go oh yeah hang on no I can do that I have done it before and mm. I can do it again you know and so mm. that yeah that idea that thoughts aren't evidence and that they're just that they're just thoughts and you can ignore them you can observe them and you can ignore them mm. and you can yeah. tell them to go away Excellent. that is fantastic advice that that you know that's absolutely brilliant isn't it mm. just, yeah you. if only we'd all told ourselves that but we can remember it every absolutely. day yeah. Um, I can't imagine you ever think you'd be bad at anything. I think you're wonderful. Oh, God. And it's just been such a pleasure to spend this time with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope everybody out there, well, I hope everybody out there has already listened to every single episode of We Are History. But if you haven't, then mm-hmm. you need to go and check that out wherever you get podcasts. And also, Angela's going to be going on tour next spring. Um, mm-hmm. So tickets are going to go on sale for that quite shortly and probably sell out very fast, I should think. And you can find those at her, web- at her website, which is angelabarnescomedy.co.uk uh, it's 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 been such a treat i can't tell you to chat to you today it really has um angela i mean w- what the listeners won't know is we had a, a little bit of a skirmish didn't we to to, to record all this the internet decided to do <laughs> it gremlins were but in. we did it we did it the gremlins were in uh, and you were so lovely uh, uh, about it all and, and we kind of got to know you b- b- between the the recording which was just just great so it's been a real treat and and i and i have to say i am determined i am on a mission here to find a way of securing you a long overdue visit to Ambridge and, and you yeah. never know we, we might even involve a G&T at the Dower House you know we'll, oh, we'll work oh on my that gosh. <laughs> honestly that I mean I could die happy if that happened I really could that's the last thing on my bucket list <laughs> oh, oh Angela take very good care it's just been fantastic thank you it's been such a pleasure thank you so much for having me Thanks for listening to our One Stiletto in the Grave podcast. If you'd like to see behind-the-scenes clips and bonus content, please visit our Facebook page, One Stiletto in the Grave podcast. And if you'd like to ask any questions, follow us on Twitter at One Stiletto 65. This podcast is produced by Raggedy House Productions and the music composed by Tom Smith. See you next time! <laughs>